Well, good to see everyone we've got out with us this morning. We do have visitors. We're especially grateful for your being here, and I hope we make you feel welcome. I hope you'll want to come back and be with us often. If you have not done so before or recently, you uh, should be able to locate a visitor's card just in front of you, and we'd appreciate you filling that out for us. But we're glad to have you here. Um, this morning, we're going to, as was announced earlier, kind of wrap up the first quarter. Tonight we'll have a singing, and Wes will direct us in that. Um, but this morning we're going to do a bit of review, and what I hope to use this lesson to do is to kind of segue from the first quarter into the second, and that will become evident as I go through some of this material that will probably, in many respects, seem very familiar. I have kind of reworded a couple of things, again, for that segue. But we are talking about this year the idea of being holy. A proper translation of 1 Peter 1 and verse 16, God said you shall be holy. And the idea even is in future, in the future of your life, you shall be holy because I am holy. For I am holy, you shall be holy. We've been talking about in this first quarter the idea of being holy in my relationship. This morning when we were downstairs, we were discussing the relationship we have with God. Now, not so much the position. And we were talking a little bit about that. But we are not emphasizing this year the position we have before God. That is, that He is God and I am man. We'll talk about that in just a moment, briefly. But we are emphasizing the relationship we have with Him. Let's go a little further with that. You've seen this often. You began to see this when we were talking about the man in the mirror. And we were talking about looking into the mirror and kind of contemplating your image. Who are you? And uh, where do you stand? Where do you stand in life? Where do you stand especially with God? What would you like to improve in life? What do you need to improve in life? All of those types of questions we were posing throughout that year. And we know we, we are indeed the man in the mirror. I am that man in the mirror. And as we talked about last year, I have purpose in life to fulfill. I was thinking and praying a moment ago, throughout the Lord's Supper, about my purpose in life and how that correlates with what we do in the Lord's Supper, where we contemplate the fact that Jesus has sacrificed everything and put us in this position before Him to be right with Him, to be what we are supposed to be. And so, I'm the man in the mirror, and I define my purposes in life, in, and if you remember throughout last year, in different respects, in different areas of life. But I come to a position, especially as I think of myself, as I look at myself perhaps in the mirror, I ask myself a question, how can I be more holy? Because God's people are supposed to be holy. You shall be holy, God says, for I am holy. How holy do you feel? And I would ask you to ask yourself that probing question. Are you holy? How holy are you? How holy do you feel you are? Where are you as far as you before God, just you alone with God, in your walk with Him, in your relationship with Him, whatever term you, you would want to choose there, but how holy in your life are you? Because God says you shall be holy. For I am holy. When we contemplate this whole idea of holy, what does it mean to be holy? Maybe we need to start with that because we hear this term and we're using it throughout the year. 
But what does it mean to be holy? Well, we've defined it. Wes and I both have mentioned several times the idea of being holy, of course, in 1 Peter 1 and verse 16, is to be set apart. And had I asked you before this year, if I said, what does it mean to be holy? A lot of you probably would have known that. It means to be set apart. Maybe something sacred. If we're talking about, you know, something that is holy, we might say, well, that's something that's sacred. Literally, the term, though, has the basic meaning of being separate. And so, to be separated, and generally speaking, we use it in a religious sense, is something that is separated by God, or something that is separated for God, or unto God, that God many times separates to Himself, as if to say, that is mine. Out of all the others, that is mine. And I believe when you look in Scripture and you begin to see God's children or saints, or Christians. And we look at that group of people, God would say of them, the Lord knows them that are His. 2 Peter 2, verse 19. So these are those who are separated by God. As much as if to be separated from the whole flock of the world into God's special flock. We belong to God. We are His. Properly, the word, though, just simply means something that's different. Something that is unique and special in that sense. Something that is distinct. If we speak of a holy God, we don't speak of a God like all other gods. We speak of one unique, distinct God. And we know what that means when we say a holy God. Well, it has the implications then of being God-like. So if I'm speaking of an individual as a holy person, and I want you to understand Every Christian here is a holy person. Not just the preacher that stands up here, the song leader, or, you know, Ani Eddie waiting on the table, or whatever. It, it's not just those people. All Christians are holy people. We're supposed to be godlike. We're supposed to be different from the world. Something revered. Something you can respect and honor. And in God's sense, absolutely revere Him. Noticeably identified with God, one dictionary put it. And I really like that. I looked at that and thought about that a long time. It's noticeably identified with God. So you can take notice of it. You can see it. And so we get all of these terms like holiness or saint or the word sanctifying, sanctification, and all of those terms which are cognate simply of the word holy. Be holy, for I am holy. Now you've seen this picture often. And in the next quarter, I'm not so much going to picture this picture, you know, I'm not going to display it so much as to talk about more of the idea of coming up to the top of the mountain. Bob read for us this passage in Isaiah 2, and if you'll notice, and I won't reread all of it, but look at some of the phrases within it. God's house is established in the top of the mountains, where God is, and all nations flow unto it. Literally, we could say they flow up to where God is. And the idea of God drawing us up there and teaching us of His ways so that we do beat those swords into plowshares, etc., etc. But as we look at God and we think of what Scripture says of God, and I, and I believe many people have this idea of God. If they respect Him, if they believe in Him, they think of passages like Psalm 46, verse 10, where God says, I am God. I will be exalted. Oh, we might think, for example, of Hosea 11 and verse 9, where God often says, as in this passage, I am God and not 
man. You know, it's very important to emphasize that. I grew up in a generation, a lot of you did as well, where the idea, Jesus Christ superstar and God spell, and some of you older people remember all that. And the idea was draw God down off the mountain, bring Him down here and make Him one of us. My generation in particular, we had a number of younger preachers, especially younger preachers, but who were very intent on preaching Jesus is just a man. Like every other man. Well, He is a man. But not like every other man. And so the idea of God stating to man and making sure man understands, I'm not like the gods of the world, and I'm not like this recreated image where I'm just like you in all your filthiness. No, I am God and not man. Or we might think of Isaiah 55 and verses 8 and 9 where God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are higher than your ways. And so we begin to contemplate God, and we think of God in that way, and I hope you do. But there's a problem with that if we're not careful. Now, you heard what I said exactly. There's a problem with that if we are not careful. Because if we are not careful, we will picture God in that way, and we will picture me down here, so far down the mountain, that I can't reach God. That God is so much higher than I am, so exalted above me, so far removed from where I am and how I think and how I live, that what's the use? I can never reach God. And so we begin to to see and feel this gap between us. And you've seen this several times. And God's people often recognize that separation. And they want to bridge that gap. They want to build a better relationship with Him. So... We've emphasized in this first quarter our relationship, being holy in my relationship, and especially with God. Now, that applies to all my other relationships in life, but especially with God, accepting His call to come to Him, or as it were, to come up the mountain, as we talk about in Isaiah 2. And we understand that coming up to meet God takes time. And it takes a concerted effort, and we're going to mention again here in a second, but such as we saw in those different historical attempts to reach God. But we need to be dedicated to a a particular plan, a practical plan, so we can bridge the separation. Now let's talk about that for a little bit more, remind ourselves of some of the things we've said. There have been notable attempts through history. People have recognized that and said, I need to get closer to God. And oftentimes they banded together and they've come up with a practical plan to reach God, to be closer to God. For example, there have been the Pharisees that date all the way back to, you know, the days of the Ten Commandments, the days of the Jews when they were in captivity in Egypt. And the very word Pharisee means separate or separated. And so the idea was to separate from the world and the influence, the corruption of the world around us. And there were the Amish, who had the same idea, but it was maybe a step further than that. It was that practical, applied plan to everything in your life, every aspect of life, whether it is the simple dedication to the work you do, your occupation, you know, fulfilling my purpose in my work, as we talked about last year. Whether it is that or it is gathering for worship to God, or it is your marriage, or your family, or whatever. Well, the Amish, in all aspects of life, 
They have a, ded- you know, a very dedicated system of living. And I think we respect that. We may not agree with all of those things. But I think we can certainly respect what they're doing, at least, from that point of view. And there were the Wesleys. Remember John and Charles Wesley. I mean, some of the songs we sing, we sang one last Sunday night, as a matter of fact. But how they, together with other young men at a seminary at Oxford in England, about 300 years ago, began to look around them and began to see even the corruption that exists among preachers. Wes and I can tell you, you know, we're preachers, but we're humans. And when we look around and we see some of the things that go on with some of our brethren, so to speak, our fellow preachers, we realize that it takes a concerted effort to be different, to be separate. And I don't just mean the immorality that sometimes exists, but just the lack of dedication, for example, to the Word itself, etc. Well, the Wesleys did that, and they looked at what was going on, they said, we don't want to be like that. And this group of young men began to get together and to make themselves accountable to each other. We saw that. And those 22 probing questions, a lot of you have mentioned those questions, and how they asked themselves those things on a daily basis. And we even saw it among our brethren. Some of you are familiar with the Crossroads movement out of Florida, the Boston church movement that uh, came out of that, and then eventually the International Churches of Christ. And the focus there was, and we'll go back and touch upon some of that, on discipling, not just on baptizing, not just on becoming a member of the church, but being one, being holy in your life. And so we looked at these plans, and we talked about in each case, the goal was to restore a personal, holy relationship with God, but sadly, in each case, The natural tendency, and usually that was realized, was the danger of trending toward legalism. I've got a good practical plan. Well, that's a plan, but it's not the laws of God. But then they were established as a creed, or became the laws that had to be obeyed. Think of the Amish, for example, and their ordnung, if you're familiar with the Amish at all. But the legalism, the ritualism, And what happens is that once you trend toward legalism or once you trend toward ritualism, you lose the personal aspect of that relationship with God. And that's what tends to happen in each case. And yet, the Christian's goal is to build and maintain what we might say is an interpersonal relationship. Let me slow down for at least about a half a minute here and explain this. When we are talking about God, when we are talking about relating to God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, God the Holy Spirit, we are talking about persons. And when we are talking about a relationship, if I have a relationship with God the Father, that is interpersonal, for that is me, a person, relating to God the Father, a person. The same is true of the Son. The same is true of the Holy Spirit. And so... I want to build and maintain such a relationship, a deep and strong association, a close connection. I don't want God to simply be as He is with so many people, someone I visit maybe once or twice a year on a special day. Or someone that I kind of pull off the shelf or I go to, you know, when I've got a problem. 
You know, I don't like going to doctors. Anybody here really enjoy that? You know, the whole waiting room, going to doctor, don't know what he's going to say, all that whole experience. Maybe there are people like it. I don't. And I go to the doctor when I, quote, have to. And I go to the doctor when I have a need. And I don't have a deep and strong association, a close connection to the doctor. I use the doctor to help me with my problem. And then we part ways. Maybe that's the way it is with you. But that's not the way it should be with God. It ought not be that what I'm doing is, oh man, i got a problem. Maybe I ought to go to church. Or man, i got a problem. You know, like Jimmy Stewart and It's a Wonderful Life, God, I'm not a praying man, but this is one time I need to pray. That's not what we should have with God. There should be an enduring bond between the two of us. It's one that's based on covenant. A covenant is a mutual agreement. It is contractual. When I become a Christian, that's what I'm agreeing to do. It's just like meeting a friend for the first time, and you know you're going to become close. I can think of a couple of friends in life that were like that. And you just you meet them, and wow, you know, there's just something there, and you know it, and we're going to be close over the years to come. But the idea is there's a mutual agreement there. We're going to agree to do that. And it's based on commitment. Because if you're going to have a BFF, a best friend forever, you're going to have to build that. And you're going to have to maintain that. Or else you're going to drift apart and be separate. So when we're looking at our relationship, we understand that our connection with God is in Jesus. We're going to really emphasize that in the next several months. But the idea of coming to God through Jesus, The idea of relating to God in Jesus and all of that kind of idea that we see in the Bible. Jesus becomes the focal point. No man comes to God except by me, Jesus said. If you're going to reach God, if you're going to come to God, you must come through me. And so we emphasize Jesus. We relate to Jesus. He is human, but he is also God. And so he is the bridge between us and God. It takes time to be holy. And our goal is not just to have an interpersonal relationship, but also to have an intimate relationship. You know, there are people that I know, and I have known as far back as I can remember. You know, that's probably true of you. Maybe parents, maybe grandparents, maybe even certain friends. You just don't ever remember a time when they weren't there. And we have that interpersonal relationship, but how close is it? You ever found yourself saying, I need to get closer to so-and-so. I need to be closer to my mom. I need to be closer to my dad. I need to be closer to my husband, my wife, my friend. And you know when you're saying that, that there's a difference in just the fact that they're there, they're going to be there, You've been there alongside them. You've related to them person to person. You know what you're saying. You are saying you want something more intimate, closer, a better bond, a stronger bond, etc. between you. You understand exactly what that means. Now it begins with God who loved us when we relate to God in such a way. He loved us with a great love. And we love Him because He first loved us. And I've likened that to the parent-child relationship. There are babies here. And there are even newborns that will be here from time to time. And they really don't 
know in that deepest sense their parents, but they will. And it will grow over time. But you know, as a parent, that you love them. They may not be able to reciprocate that right now. They may not be able to give back that deep, mature response to you, but you know that you love them. Over the course of time, they will become more respondent. And that should happen with us, with God. We should respond more and more to the love of God. They will become more affectionate. Nothing perhaps in this world is greater, purer, more wonderful than a child that puts their arms around you and says, I love you. I mean, it's just, it, it is, and those of you that are parents understand that. With God, it should be that same kind of affection. Not, I need you, God, but I love you. I love you so much, I would not want to live without you. Those of you that have been Christians for a long time, you ever stop to think, I do. I just wonder if you ever stop to think, can you remember back to when you were not and what it was like and how it might be different now? And if you begin to contemplate your life, you know, you begin to think about if I were to enter into this great big sin and I were to leave God like others that I know, what would that be like? What would it feel like? I've thought about that through the years. I've thought about, for example, you know, the idea of, of, of doing some big sin and leaving God. You know, I won't be a preacher anymore and I won't be a Christian anymore, and I won't go to church anymore. And I thought about how would I feel that first Sunday morning, you know, when it was time to go to church, when everything in my brain and in my heart screamed, you need to be there worshiping God today. But no, I'm living in this sin now. You see, you get to a point where you just can't live without that person. You don't want to. And that's the way it should be with God. So that I... It, it, it brings me into a close, intimate relationship with God. Even so close as some of our brethren around the world this very day may face. Someone may come up with a gun and say, deny Jesus or die. What would they do? How would they live without Jesus? Where would they be? The closest person in this world and beyond to them is Jesus. There's not going to be any denying of Jesus. You go ahead and pull the trigger. Because I can't live without Him anymore. That's the kind of relationship we want to develop with God. And it requires time. And, and this, these are recent sermons, so I'm going to go through this fast and I'll come back to some of this. But it requires time from both sides in a relationship. It's me talking to God. Not your typical prayer, but your atypical prayer. That involves that complete prayer in 1 Timothy 2. All kinds of prayer. Including the praise and the thanksgiving and all of that. And it's practical. You know, I'm not just saying phrases that I memorized out of a book somewhere. But this is my life. And I'm talking over my life with my best friend. And it's consistent. I'm not just going to God in times of crisis, but I'm praying every day and all the time. And it's a close relationship that I develop over time so that it becomes natural. I'll ask you this question, and this is just for you to answer. Have you ever found yourself praying and you entered into that prayer not really thinking about it? It just kind of something you did? 
If so, then you know exactly what I mean of praying so much and in so many different parts of your life that it's just natural. Sometimes I'll be sitting and talking to Montel. We'll be doing whatever, watching whatever on TV or whatever it might be, and I'll start talking to Montel, and I didn't even mean to start. It just kind of rolled out my mouth. But it's what's natural. We have that kind of relationship. We need to have that with God. And we need to listen to God. You know, it's not just me talking all the time and never listen to anything my wife has to say. But it's a two-way thing. And I need to listen to God. I need to mull over, feed on what God says, to reflect on it, to introspect, to internalize, is a popular term, what's written in this book. It's not just the Jews in 1800 B.C. or whatever it might be, or 800 B.C., I should have said. It's not just that. It's me. And I relate to the same God. I'm just like these people in this book. I'm just a person, just a human being. And He is still the same God relating to me. And I need to introspect, to internalize that, to put myself in these situations and to say, is that me? And how do I relate to God when I'm in this kind of situation? You know, I'm a David and I've just committed adultery. And I'm crying out to God, don't leave me, don't take the Holy Spirit from me. And I'm pouring out my heart and saying, I don't want to be like this, I don't want to live like this, forgive me. I mean, that's us relating to God. And I need to feed on that. And I need to muse and chew the cud like the cow, you know. Over and over and over and over what God is saying. Because frequent communication allows you to learn about the person. Both of you learn about each other. God searches our hearts and learns of us. We search His Word and learn of Him. We make a connection with the person. There are people you have a strong connection with. Some stronger than everybody else. We need that connection with God. I think we all understand that. We need to grow close to God. Communication allows you to grow close to the person. Relationships are formed in that time. Maybe you go out and you have a pizza. You sit there and you talk and you talk and you talk and you talk. Maybe you meet each other for the first time and you go to Panera Bread and talk. Now, they understand what I'm talking about this. And you talk and you talk and you talk. You get to know people. And that communication draws you close to the person. And it's those times. You think back to what a relationship is and what is a relationship but a series of times like that you communicated with the person. If you have a relationship with God, what is it? But all of those times, eventually your whole life, you spend with God. You become friends. You love the person. In some ways, love is inexplicable. People have asked the question, what is love? Love is this and it's that. Usually we talk about what we think or we feel or we do. But it's more than that, isn't it? It transcends that. And so Paul would say in a prayer... The breadth and the length and the depth and the height and something that passes knowledge. So that if you ask me, do you love your wife? Yes. Do you love your daughter? Yes. Do you love people you're close to? Yes. Do you love God? Yes. 
Can you explain that to me? No. No, I can't. I know what it means. I know what it would bring me to do. How it makes me feel. I understand that. But to try to explain to you if you have never had that, I can't. Someone says to me, I knew, you know, Joe Smith, and he was married to his wife for 56 years, and they were so close, and they had such a close relationship, and she died. And like so many times that we hear about, two months later, he died. I understand that. Do you understand that? And you understand that it is not necessarily because Joe Smith just sat around and was morbid and said, I want to die. That happens. But sometimes it is that there is such a relationship, they are so intertwined in their lives, one can't live without the other. I'm not saying that's necessarily right, wrong, has to be, or anything else. It's just that I understand that. And I think many of us do, if not all of us. I need that with God. I need to become friends with God so that I cannot live without Him. You shall be holy, God says, for I am holy. We're emphasizing four areas this year. Let me mention them quickly and I'll be done. We've been talking about be holy in my relationship. We are going to move directly into be holy in my weakness and in my strength. Because any relationship we have with God must acknowledge both my weakness and my strength. And must be part you miss everything else I say today, get this please. Your weakness and your strength must be part of your relationship with God. <clears throat> or else you have no relationship. You are simply separate from God. We're going to talk about that. So that we can be holy in our worship to God. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you might look at this lesson you might say, wow, you packed a lot in and you must have gone over a lot, especially if you're visiting for the first time. We have. But you also may look at this lesson and you might say, you're really just talking about something very simple, aren't you? You're talking about, like we think of relationships, you're talking about having that with God. If you got that, you got exactly what I'm trying to say. It is different because He is God. But it is not so different because God created us in His image to relate to Him in such a way. Maybe you want to begin your relationship with the Lord this morning. You say, what do I have to do? Well, you've got to believe in Jesus, the Son of God. And you've got to be willing to confess that, to acknowledge that. I do believe. And you have to repent. And we're going to talk about repentance. You may have noticed in the bulletin a couple of weeks from now you're going to have even the opportunity to ask questions about it. We're going to have one of those question and answer lessons. But repentance, the whole idea of you changing your life and to be baptized. What is baptism? Well, baptism is a step. It's a first great step. It's where you become identified with Jesus Christ. You are buried with Him. In baptism. You are raised up out of the waters to begin a new life in Jesus Christ. And maybe you're here and you've done that and you say, yeah, but 
I really haven't built and maintained that relationship with God. I need to start over. The Lord is a merciful God. He loves you. Remember, He is your Father. You are His child. He will accept you. He will forgive you. He will begin all over again with you because He loves you so much. Won't you please come while we stand and sing?